Our scripture reading this morning will come from Psalm 2, the Pew Bible in front of you somewhere. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's on page 448. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we had the opportunity a couple of times this semester to have a couple of older, wiser teaching elders preach instead of me. So I would draw your attention to their sermons through Faith Life or through our website, especially uh, Mike Malone's sermon last week on Psalm 119, which I've referenced in the preamble to the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago. I would reference you to those uh, sermons and any others that you have missed along the way. This morning, we take a break, as I've already said, from Exodus to look at some of the royal psalms. What are, what are those The Psalms as a whole are songs or hymns that the Old Testament people would sing in the temple. And they were talking mostly in their context about their own kings. But they also point forward to a better king. We need a king because our lives are out of control from our perspective. Maybe yours isn't, and you could counsel me in about half an hour. But mine is. That reminds me of a time when uh, the streets of Memphis were terrorized, when I and one of my high school soccer buddies took the driver's ed test, and we had to go all the way downtown from Cordova, which he and I were not expecting. There's a lot of one-way streets downtown, We had to go on the interstate. Uh, To my knowledge, he is still alive. And I can testify to the fact that both he and I survived and everybody else did as well. But in that uh, terrifying situation of driving over to the interstate, getting on the interstate, and driving downtown, and me having to park the car in the McDonald's downtown sideways, because I didn't know how to do it any other way, I had to, and so did my friend, trust the commands of somebody else, of the instructor. Which way am I supposed to go? How do I get there? How fast am I allowed to drive? When do I do the brakes? 
Which way am I supposed to turn? Where do you want to eat? Somewhere where it's easy to park, please. But it felt out of control. Terrifying, nerve-wracking. There had to be trust. That somebody else knew the directions, that somebody else had control of the situation because I, as a whatever I was, 15, 16-year-old, had no idea. That's the same for us. Now, Psalm 2 can actually be tied to Psalm 1. And I have preached them both at the same time. Psalm 1 opens the Psalter as a gateway. Which path are you going to choose? Righteousness or unrighteousness? And Psalm 2 gives us a bit of a glimpse into the repercussions of which direction we're on. And Psalm 2 shows us this morning an Advent King. Those are the ones who are righteous, who have this person as their king. His reign is, firstly, we are going to see kingly. Then we will see his reign as victorious. Then his reign offers refuge. Firstly, we will see that his reign is uh, kingly in a sense because he's got real enemies. Most kings or people in power do have enemies. Verse 6 clearly states God has a king. And verses 1 and 2 also show us a picture of this type of warfare that's happening. It says the nations are assembled with rage, ready for violence. And this is one of the themes throughout the Psalms. The Lord's anointed faces this often in the first book of the Psalms. Psalms 18, 20, and 22. Real enemies. Real opposition both physical and spiritual. David himself was well acquainted with being attacked. Uh, the word plot here is the same verb used in uh, verse 2 of Psalm 1, to, to meditate. So one is murmuring to oneself, and the other is muttering or scheming evil. Well, for, for a Jew in the Old Testament, who would that be referring to? Uh, depending on what generation would have been reading this, could have included Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, real nations, a real threat to God's people, spiritually with idolatry, uh, physically with violence and taking them into exile, which eventually would happen through Assyria as well as Babylon. These are people described as bursting bonds and casting away cords. What are the enemies? of this king want to do? Not submit. Not obey him. They see his reign as frivolous, as clamping down on their freedom, as restrictive, because he has rules and regulations, as we just talked about. Our brother Mike talked about it, Psalm 119 last week. I talked about it the week before. In Exodus 20 and verses 1 and 2 about the preamble to the Ten Commandments. But the other kings, the other nations in Canaan hate this idea. Hate this. They're God's enemies. They don't want to obey Him. Anyone is against this king if they don't want to obey Him. They want to obey themselves or someone else or go along with the culture and whatever that means. 
They don't want this king's authority over their life. They want to destroy God's king and those who would meditate on his law. Because we're either going to meditate on the law of the Lord or we're going to plot evil against him. There's, there's not a neutral ground. But we have to ask this question with regards to his kingly reign. Who is this person? The Lord's anointed is first and foremost uh, a son of David. Verse 7 does speak to the reality of the, the Trinity or this, the Son's divinity, but the context is squarely on David and his line of kings. 2 Samuel 7 Verses 13 through 14 and verse 16 state, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That was to David. Problem. David died. Solomon, his son, died. The temple that David was not allowed to build, that his son Solomon built, was destroyed, and they were all taken into exile. So again, we have to say, this does immediately have reference to the kings of Israel. But 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish, I will establish his kingdom. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 takes this to refer to both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Lord's anointed to be Jesus. In that passage, the quiet and yet sovereign nature of God's rule is in view. So I would obviously agree with Luke, the author of Acts, that while the first advent, the first waiting time of arrival of a Messiah has already occurred that all of the kings of Israel failed. But there's a true king of the church who reigns now, presently. And we await his second coming. But he's already arrived. He's already won, as we will say in a moment. But the question for us this morning is this is the answer to our problems of, of hopelessness. Does the Lord hear my prayer when it seems to be unanswered? When I see injustice, when I see difficulty in God's people suffering throughout the world, does God care? Does He listen? Will He do anything? And the answer is, He already has. There is Hope for those who will submit to this king. The question is, in every sphere of our life, are we submitting to his law? Or are there areas in our life where we say, you don't get to tell me what to do. You don't rule that area of my life. You don't have authority on that day of the week or when I'm at work, or when I'm doing a business deal, or when I'm cheating on a test. You submit to this king, the one who truly reigns over the heavens and the earth. Secondly, if you look at verses 8 and 9, you will see that his reign is victorious. Ask of me, 
And I will make the enemies, uh, the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, God is speaking to his anointed, his king, who he said in verse 6 is on his holy hill. In holiness, this king serves God the Father. Uh, this is a very serious situation in verses 7, uh, 8, 9, with regards to the defeat of God's enemies who are real. Well, what do we make of this in light of the New Testament? Uh, in Acts 13.33, Paul ascribes the time of God begetting Jesus at the resurrection. It was there that He became firstborn among the dead, according to Colossians 1.18, and defeated death, the last enemy. So Psalm 8.6 says everything is in subjection under Christ's feet. But Hebrews 2.8 states, at present we do not see everything in subjection to Him. So anybody who has a, I would say newspaper, but the internet, would, would agree with Hebrews 2.8. Well, everything doesn't seem in subjection. From my perspective, looking at the, the universal church throughout the world, looking at my own life, looking at the difficulty that Christians face everywhere. But as verses 1 through 3 clearly states, uh, there are many who do not follow Christ, who are His enemies, and this is an assurance of what happens. Christ wins. If you want to know the, the, the answer to what the book of Revelation is really about, it's about Jesus winning. In the end, He's already won. As we have just said, through His death, through His resurrection. He is the true King that all of the kings of Israel were pointing toward. All of the laws were fulfilled in Him. And so what happens in the moment, in our perspective, if it seems like God's enemies win, or they triumph, or they destroy the church, or the church lacks progress, the King will use His rod to break and destroy his enemies. The power of sin and Satan have been broken through his resurrection already. He already has won. He already reigns victoriously. Uh, looking at the shorter catechism, there are three offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. We're talking this month in the Royal Psalms about the office of king. So how does Christ execute the office of a king? I'm really glad you asked because I've got that page open right now. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. The proof text for restraining all of his and our enemies one of those proof texts is Psalm 2, which has been fulfilled. He's in defense of you if you are a believer. Attacks from the evil one, uh, injustice in this life, all of it 
has already been righted in the ultimate courtroom. But it will be righted on the last day when there is the resurrection of both the living and the dead. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we can rest in the reality that the king's victory is assured. This helps us with our fear about the future, our anxiety about the present. If you have anxiety, if you're worried about tomorrow, meditating on the office of Christ's kingship, is an antidote. Say, my king reigns right now over all of my life circumstances and the circumstances throughout the world, throughout all of human history. But finally, his reign offers refuge. Now this refuge, we will see in verses 10 and 11, come with a warning it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Then the beginning of verse 12, Kiss the Son, or be in allegiance to Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. He extends a final warning because that's the heart of the Lord. He gives a final warning. As the Psalter opens, there are two paths in Psalm 1, And then we see the results in Psalm 2. If you're not with the Lord, you're His enemy and you lose eternally. But there's this warning beckoning all of the Israelites to recommit their lives in a sense, in allegiance to the Son, but also to all the nations that they encounter. Fulfilling the covenant, Genesis 12, to Abraham that all of his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, that they would bless the nations as they do that in the land of Canaan. There is this warning. Derek Kidner puts it right. There is no refuge from him, only in him. There is no refuge from him, only in him. The warning ends by saying the king's enemies will perish, which again points back to Psalm 1, verse 6. But now we are called, therefore, like this psalm, to extend this warning to those who do not know the Lord. Because what did I say the Psalter is? It's a hymnal. They actually sang Psalm 2 together in the tabernacle and in the temple. Can you imagine singing some of these verses against God's enemies? The warning is not rude or evil. The warning is a loving blessing to those who are going to die in the way, who perish in the way without the Lord. That's part of our calling. If we have the refuge in this king, extend The hope of the refuge. Verbally share your faith that the first advent has occurred. But as was read this morning from Matthew, the second advent, no one knows the time. But there will be a time when it will be too late to profess faith in Jesus. And on that day, brothers and sisters, nothing else matters. Not what neighborhood you live in, 
Not what you've made on the ACT score. Praise the Lord. Not whether or not you passed your first driver's test. Not your job. Not your retirement account. Not the status of your family in this community. Do you submit to this king? And the answer will already have been made when he shows up. What's your answer today? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you have refuge in him? If not, I will talk to you after the service. But finally, brothers and sisters, this refuge is a comfort to those of us who already have him, who already know him. The very end of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed, joyful are those who have refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, refuge is given to those who need it. The assumption is that you need refuge. You are in a bind. You are in a sinful world. You are in the midst of suffering, of struggle, with questions, and with anxiety. And therefore, you need refuge. And he says, you have it. In the midst of all of those questions, doubts, and struggles, you have refuge. There's the assumption that you need it. And you've already been granted it. How? Because, as I've already said, on the cross, Jesus took off his kingly crown and had it replaced for him with the crown of thorns. That he would give you the crown of victory. In the latter days, when he shows up for the second time, you have refuge from eternal damnation for everything that you have done which was sinful in his sight, both active and passive. It's already been forgiven. The blood has already been shed. Death has already been defeated for you. The book of Revelation says you will not face the second death with an eternity without him because you have refuge. Take the reality of that refuge into the storm with you, knowing that Jesus survived the worst storm already for you. I left out one detail about the uh, driving instructor who I had to trust in the mayhem of driving downtown, and he was telling me to go the wrong way on the runway streets downtown, and then was, you know, you're glad you weren't driving that day down there. But I didn't realize this, and maybe they don't do this anymore, but he had a brake on his side. I, did, I didn't know that when I was driving downtown. And so therefore, when I made a stupid decision and turned left on a one way when I should have turned right, he actually had another brake. He had control, and I didn't even realize it. The Lord Jesus is reigning over the heavens and the earth. He made them. He's died for his sheep. We will not face the second death. He is in ultimate control. One day, he will come again. And Lord willing, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we submit our lives to you.
for we know that we do not control them. This causes many of us anger, anxiety, lost sleep, which we are human and frail. Help us in those moments to cling to the reality, Jesus, that you are king, that you reign presently, now sovereignly over all things. No, we do not know the answer to all of our questions, but the biggest question for us has been answered. You reign, and your reign is eternal. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.